I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. At Access Ventures, we've historically talked a ton about our work and investments related to access to capital. And to be fair, that's a ton of our work, and it gets the lion's share of our attention. But more broadly, our public equities through our investment ethic has a robust history in positive climate action and compelling data related to achieving sound financial performance while also reducing the negative impacts on the climate. Which is why today I was excited to sit down for this episode with Charles Wheeler, co-CEO and chief investment officer at Greenbacker Capital. Greenbacker is celebrating its 10th year as a firm and really doing some interesting things providing retail investors the opportunity to invest in renewable energy infrastructure. We all have been impacted in some way by the pandemic. And Charles recently said that for his work, the pandemic has changed everything. He said people aren't traveling and those businesses have been decimated as a result. But the sun is still shining, the wind is still blowing, and even during a pandemic, the community needs electricity to power their new normal. He continued by saying through the ensuing market turmoil, renewable energy infrastructure has demonstrated its resilience and brought into stark relief the potential it offers to investors for long-term stable returns. He said, when financial markets are a roller coaster, suddenly boring sounds good, especially when it's accompanied by attractive and a potentially tax-advantaged returns. And for them to achieve maximum boring, as he puts it, is a focus on risk mitigation at every step of the investment process, starting with the timing. But before we get into Greenbacker and its strategy and where they are and what they're focused on, a little about his truly idyllic beginnings on the coast of New South Wales in Australia. I, I grew up in a small country town on the south coast of New South Wales in Australia. The population of the town I grew up in was about 1,000 people. Wow. And it was right on a beach, which was at least two, three, four miles long. So I grew up uh, going surfing and um, just enjoying the natural beauty of the surroundings of where I lived. Um, and uh, I suppose from that beginning, um, appreciated just the, the magnificence of nature and, and beauty of nature and unspoiled beauty of nature. So um, when I was uh, about 16 or 15 or 16, I became quite interested in, in um, preservation of the forests in the area. They had some beautiful natural uh, wild forest around. And um, at that stage, the, the forestry um, was gazetting certain areas for um, timber cutting. And mm -hmm. so I got involved quite actively with a group that was um, trying to stop that from happening so that they wouldn't um, damage any of the the, the natural forests, and I, we, we were relatively successful. We managed to contain the forestry activities to areas where it was more regrowth rather than, uh, you know, wild forest, and certainly not um, um, pursuing forestry activities in areas where there was potential for any sort of soil damage and, and uh, erosion and so forth that was also important. Um, so that's, that's a bit about my background. Um, at, at the end of... Uh, my high school time, which you know I spent down there, um, I left that small community to go to university. Um, there, I was one of 
about three people from my high school year that went to do that. Um, wow. Uh, it, and so, um, you know, a lot of the, the, um, the graduating class um, pursued alternative careers in, in uh, you know, rural activities or in, in more manual, manual trades and so forth. Um, but I, I pursued a career. Uh, I, I pursued a desire to, to um, experience a wider set of opportunities, and so I went off to Sydney, uh, went to University of Sydney, uh, and graduated with a Bachelor of Economics from there in about uh, 1981, I think. So a long time ago. <laughs> um, how'd you How'd you end up into economics? Like, was there some coursework in high school that yeah. led you down that path? Or? They had They taught economics at at university at, at, at high school, I should say, and I I was. Um, I always did very well on that subject. It always came completely naturally to me. Um, my father was an accountant, country accountant, um, and so maybe I just had a, an affinity for that sort of information. Um, but I, I didn't do, you know, um, what I call uh, traditional economics. Um, I was a, uh, a long-haired sort of hippie type, and I, <laughs> I pursued political economics, which was was more to do with the politics of, of, of economics and how to affect change. And so I actually studied Marxism um, and, and uh, Galbraith and people like that when I was studying um, more so than the traditional uh, hmm. economic formulae, statistics and so forth. I didn't, I didn't do that. So it's more of a liberal arts type. Thing. Sure. And so when you when you graduated from university, um, what what did you do next? Like uh, obviously, you said that was in the in the early '80s and Greenbacker, which we'll get to in a, in a second. The, the the current thing you've been uh, proud to build and and kind of grow uh, is ten years old. Um, and so what 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 transpired between graduating from university and kind of getting into the work at Greenbacker? Uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I um, always envisaged um, my uh, time away from my hometown as being relatively a short period of my life. So I went to university when I concluded my uh, university degree, which, which, which I majored in uh, economics, but I also focused on accounting and, um, you know, um, Australian business law. I, um, I thought I'd get a bit of experience in the big city as a, as a worker. Uh, before returning to my hometown and perhaps joining my father's accounting practice and and looking after his clients uh, in his retirement years, um, so uh, you know fairly simple plans for a simple kid from the country. Uh, yeah, and and so I got a job with one of the big accounting firms at the time. I think they had Big Eight. It was called Touche Ross. I started there, and um, I, I they put me in auditing. Uh, and and I quickly realised that the skills that I was gaining as an auditor weren't going to really give me much value in my next step, which was to go back to the country and look after farmers' um, accounting and tax work and so forth. So I lobbied hard to move into the tax group within this firm so that I could learn something that might be useful in the next phase of my, my career. Um, and um, that was... Uh, eye-opening because I just, I really, really loved the work. Um, I just 
really enjoyed it. And um, I had some pretty exciting clients that I can't really name, but I had, you know, very, very big Australian corporations were my, were my clients and I was helping them and I felt a real sense of, of um, value um, that I was delivering and it was a very rewarding time for me. And um, anyway, so I pursued that for uh, several years and then I did what a lot of Australian kids do, which is re resigned from that job and, and set off to explore the world. And I went to Europe with my twin brother and we, we you know, did a big European trip um, all over the place, just experiencing different places and seeing different things. And when I went back, um, I rejoined Touche Ross for a while, but I think I'd got a little bit, um, my, my uh, thoughts and vision had, had increased. Um, and so when I, when I, uh, what I thought would be good to, as another skill set to add to my talents when I returned to my hometown was to understand finance because a lot of the rural community needs assistance with their banking and their financial arrangements. So I got a job at a bank. Um, hmm. I applied one weekend for three jobs um, just to see what would happen. And I ended up taking a job at a, an organization called Macquarie Bank at the time. It was a small company, 500 people, a small operation. Um, and uh, the, the rest is a little bit of history, really. I was there for 25 years. Um, my, it, it started at 500 people by the time I left 25 years later, there were about 12,000 people. It, it um, lucked into a situation where the Australian government was made, it made the strategic decision that the private sector should become the major source of capital for infrastructure development across the country. Uh, and so rather than, um, you know, small government was the, the thesis. Maggie Thatcher embraced that sort of thesis as well, small government. So private sector should be the source of these, this capital and certainly the management of these government assets because government really isn't very good at managing assets. Uh, and, and Macquarie, because Australia was such a, a thought leader in that process, we developed skills in Macquarie that we were then able to export around the world. Um, and, and so that's what led to the growth. We were sort of moving with that evolution of the thinking to all the major economies of the world, with one exception being the United States, which today and even yesterday, when the president announced the huge injection of government money into the into the infrastructure space, it really wasn't focused very much on how can the private sector play in this space and what 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 a difference can they make in this in this equation. Yeah. So that's the beginning so of how I got um, into infrastructure, hence. I got in, into Greenbacker essentially because Greenbacker is yeah. the is the uh, an infrastructure play in, in renewable energy. Yeah, so um, it's quite fascinating. I have to imagine you never never actually did make it back to the country to be no. the, the country accountant, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> some interesting uh, interesting lessons along the way and. It's fascinating that that was that was kind of the driver in some of these decisions early on. Like, oh, maybe, you know, move from auditing to to tax accounting to banking and finance. Um, uh, but then I'm sure the the excitement of it and the the growth and the opportunity to learn and to continue to be challenged uh, was pretty alluring and attractive. Yeah, and uh, financially rewarding. Uh, was, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, and and sadly my father passed away and, um, you know, I was in the middle of something and I just couldn't return to take over the practice. So my mother sold the practice and that was the end. So so the the optionality (laughs) went out of it, so to speak. so with so with Greenbacker then, um, so this background in, in infrastructure, how how did you find yourself going from from the work in, in Sydney and and all of that to to Greenbacker, uh, which is uh, correct me if I'm wrong, ten years ten years old, yeah, coming up here ten, shortly. Ten years old this uh, in February this year, so we've just passed the ten year mark. So I I came over to the United States in two thousand and seven. Um, as I mentioned before, it was 500 people in Macquarie when I joined it, and, and it worked a bit like an escalator. You know, we kept employing more and more people underneath, and the people that were at the bottom step gradually rose up to the top step. Um, and so I was, I, was on one, I was on one of those bottom steps when I joined, and, um, <laughs> and suddenly I was managing large groups of people, and the centre of gravity of that organisation was, was in Sydney. So I stayed in Sydney managing people um, and building businesses in that organization. But, but as the organization became much larger and there was a much bigger talent pool of people to take on senior management roles, the opportunity came up for me to sort of come overseas, to do an overseas stint, um, let's say. So I, so I came to the North America um, to head up one of the business units for Macquarie over here it had a number of um, business activities, but one of which was renewable energy. Um, the the area that I was in um, was more focused on tax, the tax attributes associated with these things because of my background in tax, right? So that was that was the um, the angle that we were focused on. But it very quickly became apparent to me when I arrived here that that Macquarie that wanted to become a significant um, player in the United States as an organization could um, ride another escalator, and that was what was happening in the broader renewable sector. And if we built a business which was aligned to that sector in terms of the services that we could provide to those people, we could grow as those, those companies grew into the future. So instead of going and talking to General Motors and trying to become a banker to them, um, let's let's go and talk to um, some of the the emerging players in this space, and and in five or ten years they'll be the General Motors of the future, and and we can and we can be banking them, Tesla, for example, and organisations like that. So that was the big theory uh, and the, and the strategy, and I got very um, good support from the institution um, to to build that concept. Um, and, and that involved sort of three prongs, if you like. One was to build an advisory business. One was to build a principal business, which means putting Macquarie's own capital to work in that space. And the third was to build the funds business, which is to, to build an investment fund underneath Macquarie where you go and raise capital from institutions and you put that capital to work on their behalf, which is, was the model we'd sort of done in other infrastructure classes around the world. So um, in about 2008, of course, the world melted down and so the, the brakes went on a little bit in terms of using the bank's own capital to put to work in, in, in these sorts of enterprises. But that was after we'd done quite a few transactions. So we'd already, we'd already built up a bit of a presence in the market. Um, 
But then I went and started working on the fund concept. Um, and I'd have to say it was a very depressing experience. I point of view. <laughs> um, Why is that? Because the, the, um, the funds who are managing your and my retirement money, my 401k and so forth, the, those institutions were just so out of touch with what's happening in the future. Um, all they were thinking about is what's happening now and what happened yesterday, and they weren't thinking ahead of the opportunities. So when I went out to talk to them about putting capital to work in a renewable sector, which was the future um, in terms of the energy space, I got feedback like that renewables was too dependent on government um, support, hmm. and it was a fad. It was, you know, it wasn't core. Um, there was just every excuse known to humanity, basically, from every institution we approached in the United States was, to, no, we're not, we don't want to do that. Um, and if you're going to do something in renewables, you should do it as a sleeve of your broader infrastructure fund, which might own airports or toll roads or other things of that nature. Um, so that was pretty depressing feedback. We managed to get the Europeans who are more familiar with what's going on in the sector to commit to putting $800 million to that fund, um, but, but they had to be a minority. And when we had not one penny from US institutions, we sort of had to call it off. So you know, a lot of time, energy and effort went into that exercise. And the, the result was that we didn't, we didn't launch a renewable energy fund in the end. Uh, at the end of that process, I was a little bit um, disgruntled, I suppose, is the right way to put it. And, um, and so uh, I, I thought, well, I've been in Macquarie for 25 years. Maybe it was time to return to my hometown and, and just enjoy mm. the surf and the sun and the, and the sand. Um, but uh, you know, serendipity as it is, I happened to meet a fellow who said to me, he had a great vision and his vision was go and raise capital from retail investors to put to work in renewable energy. And I had sat and I thought about it and I thought, well, people are actually making decisions to recycle trash and, and they're making decisions to drive a Prius at that stage and put solar on their roofs and, and things of those. And they're making personal choices that are environmentally friendly because they want to try and have an impact. So maybe if they had an opportunity to put capital to work, their, their savings to work in this space, that would also be appealing. So there was sort of like... The, the, um, the institutions are all uh, caught in, in yesterday's paradigm, but individuals seem to be looking ahead and thinking, we've got to do something. We've got to make a difference. We've got to change the way things are done here. Uh, so off we went somewhat naively to do that. That, that, was, that was the formation of Greenbacker back in 2011. Um, it took us an enormous amount of time, like three years, before we really could get out of the gate. And that sounds ridiculous, but but it's um, you know we had to to do this properly. We had to you know put together an offering to the retail market that was very robust and and uh, was had been fully vetted and, and um, you know the regulators had gone over it from top to bottom, uh, and yeah. it just took a long time because every time there was a uh, 
a 30 or a 60 day time for an a government body to respond to you they they would respond on the on the 59th day so that you know every you know there was no urgency no speed to get things done anyway so ultimately yeah. we managed to come out of, out of that process with an approval and we started raising capital but we were just really six people um pretty faces in the book um with no track record or no assets so it was a pretty slow start to be honest well and it, it's uh it's interesting cuz i'm just hearing you talk i mean obviously the markets have been have been a roller coaster um and even since 2008 with the collapse um back then with the housing market and such it, it's interesting to me that renewables it, you talk about like forward thinking and and future oriented um as individuals, institutions always seem to be lagging behind. But, but it's always interesting to me that renewables are almost perceived as almost like a luxury investment. Uh, they're not a stable investment, or you know, those are things you do when everything else is maybe more secure. And so, as the market or as the economy was was waffling over the last decade, it's like people backed away from some of those kind of types of investments or the infrastructure. Um, but what I'm hearing you say is, is really at the, at the individual level, people were, were, were beginning in the same time to make decisions, uh, recognizing the impact of, of the, of their money and companies that have been negative towards the climate or towards, um, social issues and saying, there's gotta be something different. There's gotta be a different way of doing this. So, so you were actually able to, to shift with Greenbacker to that individual, consumer, if you will, or investor and, and really capture, uh, some momentum. It sounds like it took a little bit of time, but talk to me about that. Like how, 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 how was that different for you? I mean, what was that like to like the individual investors? Is it, is it harder because it's, it's more people involved? I mean, I, I have to believe going to institutions, it's larger checks from fewer people, the retail, I've got to believe it's more people, maybe smaller checks. What does that look like in, in kind of building that strategy over the last 10 years? Yeah, I, I don't think we could see um, there, there was no sign hanging out somewhere saying, eh, please knock on my door, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, and and uh, the, the reality was that, that it was more our perception. I mean, people were making decisions, personal decisions, to, to recycle trash and put solar on their roof. Um, there was sort of like good personal economic ra- rationale for that, right? Well, maybe not for the recycling, but, but certainly for the solar. They were making it because they could save money. Um, why I think we were a little naive is that we, well, we didn't really anticipate a couple of things. One, one was just how difficult it is to reach individuals when you're selling a financial product. I can't go on television and advertise the, the product. Um, there are all these regulations that stop financial products being distributed widely to the general population to protect their interests, which is appropriate. And so you've got a lot of barriers to, to getting to the individuals. But then when you do get to the individuals, they've never heard of investing in something like this before, right? So if you're talking to them about having taking an interest in a piece of real estate, they, they sort of understand that because they've, they've owned their own house or, you know, whatever. They might have, their parents may have owned a house or whatever or an investment property. They understand how the chemistry works. But we'd go and talk to them about owning a, a solar panel or solar farm. Uh, they they just had no concept of how that worked, and so it took a lot of education. 
But because we couldn't speak to the individuals, we had to sort of educate the doorkeeper. Then the doorkeeper was acting on behalf of their platform of people that could spread the word, which was might be 100 people. So you go through research groups and then into in distribution people and then you educate them, then you go and educate the internet. So it was, it was a very long process to get a $5,000 or a $10,000 check. Um, so um, the, the difference, of course, was that, that people want, were interested and wanted to know about it, whereas the institutions at the time wouldn't <laughs> even, you know, they were just not interested. It wasn't, it wasn't any possibility. Exactly. Well, with uh, speaking to that, like, so you started to kind of explain it a little bit, but I think for our listeners, when you say sustainable infrastructure, what, what is it exactly that Greenbacker is investing in? What does that look like? We, we invest in uh, renewable energy infrastructure, which is um, sort of obvious things like solar farms, wind farms. Um, it could be small hydro schemes. Um, but we also have a, a mandate to invest in uh, energy efficiency, and that might be like that a town might want to swap out its lighting to go to LED lighting and, and um, things of that nature or insulation around some heating equipment um, to, to, to um, sort of preserve energy. Um, so all, all of those sort of categories of, of infrastructure investment are the things that we put capital to work in. And uh, so I was actually literally this morning on the way into work listening to NPR and uh, Secretary Buttigieg was was being interviewed just about the the latest infrastructure bill uh, that you even mentioned from President Biden. So thinking about that, what what are the implications uh, what, when, when you're looking at that type of legislation and the opportunity that's before, how, how well is Greenbacker positioned and and what does that mean for the future of of the United States where both of us live, but also globally as we think about climate change and the responsibility of, of economies and businesses and people to, to kind of move in this direction. Like what is, where, where does that fit the infrastructure kind of strategy and the opportunity that, that you, it seems like Greenbacker has built a great foundation and is really primed and ready to help support and grow, uh, uh, with that over the next uh, four to Yeah, we're definitely, we're definitely primed to grow. I, I think the, the infrastructure announcements are, are, more, are more tailwinds, I would describe them as. I don't, I don't think there's anything very specific in there that is going to have a, a material impact, although there's been some discussion around um, further uh, extending some of the existing tax incentives that exist federally. Um, and there's also discussion around having a national... Um, energy renewable energy standard, so that you know um, all all of the all of the country will have targets instead of just various states. But one thing about the United States is it is fifty states, right? And so there's fifty separate regimes going on doing their own thing, some of which are very very um, proactive, and and some of them are not. But it's a very you know like California for example, it's a huge economy. And the fact that it has a 100% um, target for renewable energy, I think by 2050, is you know, a major driver to activity that, that lives completely on its own, irrespective of what's going on in Washington. Uh, and the same True. as in New York and, and, other, and other important states in the, in the US economy. So, so um, you know, I, I would just say generally, there's an enormous uh, amount of tailwinds going on. But, but I think fundamentally that 
the reality is that because of the amount of investment that's gone into this asset class, both in terms of just nuts and bolts, but also in technology and so forth, improving efficiency, that now wind and solar is, is you know, some of the lowest cost of energy on the market. It's cheaper to produce wind energy and, or electricity from wind and electricity from solar than virtually every other form of generation. So it's gone from being um, a, a concept where you may have to force people to do it to one where the economic rationale stacks up on its own. The obvious disadvantage is it's intermittency. Um, and and um, so I think we're, what we're going to see in the next decade is a massive amount of investment in, in batteries or other storage technologies that can sort of address the intermittency of wind and solar to, to compensate for that. Yeah, it's, it's so I'm going to flip gears a little bit because it's my wife and I, we, we, we just moved on to 11 acres. So we live in Kentucky, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and, and we're actually putting in solar <laughs> on our, on our property. Yeah. But it's been, it's been a fascinating process, even just this residential solar project, um, just to learn about what I've been floored by is just the power of utilities and even just to, to squash some of those, those opportunities where you're like, don't we have kind of the similar goal here is my question. Cause it's like, I, I, I have 11 acres. I could actually put more, I could help produce energy and sell back to the grid. Or I even brought up the idea, like I've got neighbors. And I'm like, well, what if I put a mini grid on my farm and then I go in with these neighbors and we sell shares and, and they're like, well, it sounds good, but then you become this regulated utility, and and it's just, yeah, it's just silly. It's just dumb. It it is dumb, but I think you've got to remember that uh, electricity is a, it's almost a human right now, uh, and true. and the regulation is there to protect on the downside. And we did have an experience recently in Texas where that the regulator got it wrong, right, and and people hmm. suffered, people died because of that, right? Yeah. Um, so the regulation is there for a reason. Uh, the utilities are monopolies in, in large part in their particular service territories, and, and they're very protective of the, their position there. But, but um, uh, they've been in operation for like since the 20s or even beyond in some cases. So, so they've got a lot of institutionalised inertia, one might say. <laughs> including yeah. a lot of money invested in existing infrastructure that they don't want to just toss out. They want to yeah. keep it and use it until it's naturally ready to be retired. Um, so, uh, you know, that the innovation that can come into the market is, is in some, some respects being slowed down by that inertia. They don't, they don't want to stop using that coal-fired power station just yet because it's got another 10-year economic life and, you know, all they have to do is buy coal and burn it in a way where they're generating energy, energy right? Whereas, you know, if you compare that with with some of these other schemes of, of renewable energy, you know, they've got to make some important decisions and change the way things are done and it's sort of easier just to stay the status quo. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I think there's sort of pros and cons, to be honest, for the utility. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because... Uh, we kind of rushed uh, this year to do it because we found out that there's there's this uh, net metering that's going in where if we if we do it before a specific date we get the one to one net metering, 
versus uh, you know being paid the commercial rates that that a coal power plant uh, is paid to to produce a kilowatt hour. So yeah, you it's kind of interesting. Just get the retail rate, but there, there's there's a lot of development going on around the United States now, and, and regulation um, being being adopted by state governments to facilitate community solar. And community solar is the concept you were sort of referencing, which is you have a a, a large facility where you sell the electricity to individuals rather than to the utility. So an ind an individual can own the production coming from that specific site and it's sort of done virtually obviously because you can't tap in you can't run into a power lead out and tap into the solar farm 100 miles from your house um, so it's all done via the utility but you're actually buying the electricity being generated at that solar farm directly for your for your domestic consumption maybe in the apartment building because you don't actually have a roof you can't put can't put solar on your roof because you haven't got a roof uh, the, yeah, no, I've seen that's some really, and it's interesting you bring up the, the storage technology, battery storages, because I think that's that's that really that's that next thing, uh, yeah, to to really figure out. Um, and all these things just become much more logical as the costs of production of the technology and scale of that technology improves. And mm -hmm. and you know that in some sense that was the vision with Greenbacker. I mean, there are lots of people out there buying assets, like the ones we buy. We're not alone in doing that. We're, we're one of the very few, if not the only one, that is tapping into uh, the individual retail investor for that capital. Um, and the theory is that the more people that have an economic alignment with the with the sector, you know, that they have some of their own money invested in it and, and therefore uh, have a an economic interest in, in its future. The more people that vote, the more legislation can be favorable to that. And then ultimately the, the cost of capital comes down such that projects that would not be viable couldn't become viable. So that you suddenly, everything is becoming more and more competitive and you've got to drive the cost down to stay competitive. If we can tap into this universe of, of capital that others can't that that's the real advantage that we think we can bring to the to the climate change problem um yeah. because you know just capital on its own is is a commodity but if you can bring very low cost of capital um because you're you're finding investors that truly believe that the, that the good is worth something as well as the cash flow um then then um, you know you can drive the cost down. Yeah, and I think I think that's an interesting thing. Like I think the the strategy of Greenbacker, although I'm sure very difficult to go to the individual investor, uh, it, I I have to believe personally that over time it's going to have an even greater effect on on the issues of climate change because you're actually involving more people in that process. That's, that's exactly more the people are individually involved versus mm -hmm. you know passively through yeah. the institution. They're experiencing that. They're seeing the upsides on the on the financial returns. They're seeing the impact in their local communities and across the country and across the world. And so, yeah, it, so with that, like, what is what is ten years old? What is what does the next ten years look like? What are you really excited for? Uh, looking forward to the future. <laughs> what am I excited for? Wow. Um, well, the the future is really just more of the same. But uh, you know, to be able to really tap into just much larger pools of capital. Um, I suppose it'd be really wonderful to be able to 
take this theory and apply it to other causes besides um, um, just renewable energy. Maybe it's other low-cost housing and, and other things where people can make an economic return and have a vested interest in, in the preservation and, and uh, evolution of those activities. You know? So that's the sort of theory. If, if you turn something that is, I suppose it's in, in some sense it's the private sector showing what it can do in, in uh, public um, uh, causes. Like, it's not just renewables. We've been able to demonstrate that the public can get involved in that and, and have a nice economic return. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of other ways the public can get involved in some of these things and get a good economic return. And then suddenly these things don't become someone else's problem. They're at, we own them. We, we, individually, mm -hmm. we have ownership of the issues and we can, we can do something about it, right? And that's really yeah. what's empowerment of people to, to make a difference. So Charles, I got to ask, like, um, clearly you've, you've had a, a, a fantastic career financially. I'm sure you're, you're well taken care of. What is it? What is it that challenges you? Uh, and why do you do this? Because I think, you know, a lot of people that I've met with the, the track record and the success that you've seen, uh, they could go off and just retire and, and they've, they've done there, they've done that, they've been there and now they're just uh, enjoying the fruits of their labor. What, what is it about this work and, and why do you continue uh, to press forward? Um, what, what challenges you? What excites you? What do you wake up to do every well, day? It, it is, a, you know, and I don't want to sound arrogant here because that's not the Australian thing, right? We don't. <laughs> <laughs> but you're in New York yeah, now, so no, go ahead. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it, is, it is a bit of a dream to be able to look back on one's life and say, I, I made a difference, right? I, I, I was... Hmm. I was obviously the father of my three children, so that made a bit of a difference to the population of the globe. Uh, but I, they're, they're, what else have I done? You know, that's the one thing to drive around in a fast car and live in a big house, but that doesn't really make a difference to anyone other than yourself. I, I, want, I want to be able to sort of, when I've been carried off in a wooden box, to, to look back and say, look, you know, I was, I was able to change the, something and make, make a material, have a material impact on the lives of others not, not just to make myself, myself feel good, but because that empowered them to make themselves feel good, you know, like giving sure. people um, some sense of, of um, a future where they might feel like they don't have much future at the moment. But that, that sort of drives me forward. I mean, I, I'm living here in New York by myself. My wife is in Sydney, Australia. Um, mm. So, you know, I'm making a lot of personal sacrifices um, to, to continue to realise my vision here. Um, but the other thing, to be honest, I, I really enjoy um, the, the the sense of that you you are working with people, right? You're working. I work with the people in my organisation. We've created a hundred jobs in the United States mm. since we started Greenbacker, um, and so you know that's families and life. You know, then you think about how many of those people have parents and all of those people we're impacting. Um, and, and um, you know, it's just it's just great to see the young people evolving and getting involved and, and participating in what we're doing and, and giving people careers and shaping the future, I suppose. To learn more, check out greenbackercapital.com. 
Thanks for listening to More Than Profit. And if you liked what you've heard, do us a favor by subscribing and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Check out our work at accessventures.org. Thanks for listening.